Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, church. How are you? This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice, huh? Choose joy in spite of the weather, in spite of anything else going on in your life. Hey, you heard from Jeremy in that video Earlier, we're on the verge of a big day in the life of our church. Easter is coming, of course. And one more thing about that day. Um, After that second of two services, we're going to have baptism. But it won't be baptism out in the atrium like we typically do baptism. The plan is, according to the weather, as the weather holds up, the plan is to do baptism outside on that day. And that'll be another first for us. Right now, we've got about a dozen folks lining up for baptism and uh, more all the time. And so maybe that's something that you need to prayerfully consider in your life, in your journey in following Christ. And we would love the chance to talk to you about that. Got a question for you. How many of you love old movies? I'm talking old. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go Buster Keaton on you if you want to. Okay, I'm talking old I love watching old classic movies. Tonight at Showbiz on North Park, the movie The Ten Commandments, playing as a run-up to Easter. If you've never seen it on the big screen, you know, that might be a good way to see it. You know Charlton Heston, Yul Brynner, Vonda Carlo, classic, classic cinema. Now, I wouldn't get my Old Testament theology from director Cecil B. DeMille, you understand that, but it's a movie that can help us get an idea of that great event in Old Testament history. And, but like all art forms, it, it falls short of describing God fully and, and, and what God was doing and the work of God and all that, it, especially when you can clearly see the uh, safety pin and the diaper of Moses as he's floating down the Nile there. Uh, <laughs> Or when Moses appears before the burning bush at one point, you can clearly see the tire tracks of the dolly that carried the camera as it zoomed in on him. But it's certainly more true than the biblical story that the animated film came out with a few years ago, The Prince of Egypt, that Disney effort. And so I just let you know about that. As I reflected on Jeremy's message from Exodus last week, I asked myself, how was it that Moses was able to wrestle with God in prayer in such a powerful way, to so boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence and pray in such a way that the Lord's manner of dealing with the Israelites was altered? I think we need some some backstory to Moses to understand how he got into that position with God. Because you don't just waltz into the presence of God and, and declare things to be so, right? Without some preparation. You don't, you don't walk up to a 220-volt line, I assume, and lick your fingers and grab a hold of it and say, well, this ought to be something fun, no, you, right? How much more powerful is the God of the universe? God had a lot of work to do in Moses' life to transform him from being a self-important man who imagined that God needed him to become a humble man who knew that he needed God. So let's review this morning. We're going to be in Exodus 1, 2, and parts of 3 just very quickly. But in Exodus 1, we learned that the children of Israel, who were originally from Canaan, they had come down to Egypt during a famine. And you may remember all the events in the life of of Joseph in Genesis that took him from his family, placed him in leadership in Egypt just about the time the famine was happening so that he could provide for his family. And the descendants of Joseph and his brothers became very numerous in the land of Canaan, and they just are in the land of Egypt, and they never returned back to Canaan. 
But then that old Pharaoh died, and under a new regime, a new Pharaoh believed that the Hebrews were getting too numerous, too powerful. They were afraid of them. So they enslaved the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. But following the command of their God, these Hebrews continued to be fruitful and multiply. And in chapter 1, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. I don't know how they kept a straight face on that one, but they did. In verse 20, so God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And then verse 22, Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So if Pharaoh's plan were successful, it would eradicate all the Hebrew males in a generation and they believed that Hebrew women would be more easily subjugated, more easily assimilated into Egyptian culture. And so the story of the, the, uh, the Hebrew midwives is a great example of civil disobedience in a biblical form. And it continues in chapter 2. What Moses' mother, Jochebed, does is very cagey. She gets a basket and she coats it with pitch. It's the same tar-like substance that Noah coated the ark with to make it watertight. Now, now we have a word in English, atonement. And I'm going to nerd out on you for just a moment with this word, okay? Atonement in English comes from the idea of at-one-ment, which suggests making two things into one. It's talking about reconciliation. When Jesus made atonement for us, that means he has brought us and God together as one. Our sin had separated us from our God, right? But now because of Jesus' blood covering us, we are atoned for. We are made one with God. And that Hebrew word for atonement, kippur, means to cover or to purge or to make reconciliation. And the verb form of the word means to cover with or coat with pitch, and that last definition is very interesting because it's the same Hebrew word for what, used for what the ark was covered with. When God commanded Noah to build an ark to save him and his family and on the animals from the coming judgment of the flood, Noah was commanded to cover the ark with pitch or kaffir, the verb form of kippur, which is to cover, to make reconciliation with, to make atonement for. So get this. In the ark, God was making a way, making atonement for Noah and his family so they could be one with God and be reconciled to him. And here, Mo Moses' mother coats, covers his little basket with the same pitch to make it waterproof, to let it float down the Nile. So back in Genesis, God is saving Noah in the ark from the floodwaters of God's judgment. Here, God is saving Moses from the waters and saving his people through this one baby who's in a tiny little ark that is covered with pitch. See, God is coming after his people here. 
That's what's going on. He wants to make them one again with him. At one mint. Atonement. Kippur. You've heard of Yom Kippur, the Jewish holiday marking the day of atonement. So back to the midwives. There's a biblical basis for civil disobedience, and this is, this is a great example. The midwives lie to Pharaoh, and God commends them. When a human government commands what God forbids, or a human government forbids what God commands, we are duty-bound to obey God rather than men. And that's what Moses' mother did. But of course, at some point, Moses grew too big to be hidden, and and his mother came up with a plan that we see in verse 3 of chapter 2 there. At first glance, this plan doesn't seem like a great strategy, at least not to me. The most um, likely outcome of a baby in the river is at best dehydration, and at worst, drowning. Not to mention there are crocodiles in the Nile. And do you see the irony here? The Nile was to be the place where all of Israel's baby sons would die. But God says, no, it's going to be the place where one of Israel's baby sons will live and he will eventually be used to make atonement for his people. So Miriam, Moses' big sister, watches the basket glide down the river, get caught in some reeds. She sees the Egyptian princess fish it out. And when she sees the woman have a favorable response to the baby, she boldly approaches her and says, well, shall I get a nurse? Shall I get a Hebrew wet nurse for you? And again, she's being coy. She's being shrewd. And above all, she's trusting in God for courage. And and then what about this Egyptian princess? She's likely not the only daughter of Pharaoh. He would have had multiple wives and concubines and countless children running around the palace. You you don't have to be a rocket science to figure out what happened next. She sees this baby. She knows it's a Hebrew baby, but she's taken with him. I, I suspect she knows what's going on, but who doesn't fall in love with a baby, right? So she agrees to say she's the mother and have him at least partially raised in his Hebrew family. And again, the irony here. Get this. It's from the house of Pharaoh that the edict went forth to kill the sons of the Hebrews. But through God's providence, it is from the house of Pharaoh, by means of his daughter's compassion, that Moses was saved from that slaughter. As if God was saying to Pharaoh, you think your house is important, the most important in the land? I will use your house to bring down you and your kingdom. That's our God. And consider the irony of the weak defeating the strong. Moses comes into the world as a little defenseless baby. He is saved by these three women who are not valued in their culture. They are considered powerless. They're considered to be of little worth. And in contrast, Pharaoh is considered to be the most powerful man in the known world. And yet, these three women and a baby with no apologies to Tom Selleck, Ted Danson, and Steve Gutenberg. These three women and a baby sowed the seeds of Pharaoh's demise. Case closed because God works all things together for our good. How many of you know that? See, because of God's sovereignty, because God is working together all these things in Moses' life for Moses' good, Moses was exactly where he needed to be to serve in his role as mediator. He was raised with the knowledge of his Hebrew identity, so he would also know the presence of Yahweh. 
the God of the Israelites. But because he's also raised in the ways and knowledge of the palace in Egypt, he would be familiar with it when he was eventually sent by God to confront Pharaoh. In the end, beloved, God compels Pharaoh to give room and board and education to the very man who would bring down his kingdom. This is how Pharaoh's wisdom was turned to foolishness and Satan's devices were defeated because God was working together all things for Moses' good. Moses is what scholars call an archetype of Jesus. He's more than a symbol. He's a foreshadowing. He's He's a beautiful, if incomplete, picture of what the Messiah would be like. And like Moses, Jesus was born at a time when Israel was under the foot of a foreign power, no? As with Moses, Jesus was born when a powerful leader, King Herod, issued a decree to slaughter Israelite male babies. Of course, Jesus was preserved from this decree by the providence of God and the faithful actions of his parents who took him down where? To Egypt. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. God works all things together. For our good. During the first 40 years of his life, Moses enjoyed a lot of privilege. He was a man of many advantages. God had protected him. God had ensured his survival. He was raised as a prince in the most powerful nation in the world. And because of this, he never went without anything. Unlike his fellow Israelites, Moses never, Moses never lived as a servant. Others served him. He would have had a first-class education, not only in Egypt, but he also received religious instruction at the feet of his birth mother. And he had a sense that God wanted to use him in a special way. Over in Acts 7, in the middle of a sermon by a guy named Stephen, it confirms the idea that Moses already had a sense that God had called him to rescue his people. He had the privilege of being called by God to a great task, and he knew it. But how many of you know, privilege often, if not usually, leads to pride. Privilege often generates presumption and entitlement. How many of you can attest to that? Like many men of privilege, Moses allowed his advantages to give birth to personal pride and self-sufficiency. And when the seeds of privilege yield the harvest of pride, God sends correction. Just because he lived as a prince did not qualify Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. Just because he dined on the delicacies of the palace day after day did not qualify him to rescue anyone. Just because he was raised in privilege did not mean he could one day stand before God and wrestle with him in prayer and beg him to change his mind. And in this case, God sent Moses on a 40-year Detour. So let's look this morning at our main passage in chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? 
Are you thinking of killing me like you killed that Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. You ever been there? Me too. Countless times. What I did must have become known. Moses may have assumed that the Hebrew slaves would see him as their deliverer. Instead, they saw him as just another Egyptian, someone they were not about to trust under any circumstances. And we see pride in two ways here. First of all, we see Moses tries to impose his own timetable for the deliverance of the Hebrews. He understood one of his own is being harmed here. And he had some sense of his calling to be involved in the liberation of his people. But God had not fully revealed to him the plan, how it was going to work. So when Moses inserted himself into the situation, he was presuming that his timetable was the one that God was on. That's pride. And by killing the Egyptian, Moses was implying that he could go at it alone. He was declaring he didn't need God. A second way Moses' pride emerges is the way he tried to liberate his people. God had a plan for how he would deliver the Israelites, a plan that would involve God's glory, God's power. Moses' plan just involved using his own physical strength. God's plan of deliverance was intended to be public, to display his glory. But Moses' method involved an act in secret to hide his shame. When we substitute our methods for God's methods, we're acting in a prideful manner. In verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this, he he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. What's in Midian, you ask? Not much. It's a barren wilderness. Not much grows there. Not much grows there except humility, empathy, two things Moses was woefully short on at the time. Remember, Moses was a Hebrew who grew up in great privilege. He knew the Israelites were in bondage, but he didn't have a real sense of what that was like. But now in Midian, he finds himself in a form of bondage. He had been taken from his land and placed into a strange land among strange people. He had lost his privileges. He now had to work for a living and he became a shepherd, a low-level occupation that requires a lot of work for not much pay. But it would be very similar to what God would do, would call him to do as he shepherded the children of Israel through the wilderness. So in in Midian, Moses got a taste of what it was like to be a Hebrew in slavery in a foreign land. He could now begin to identify with and empathize with the Hebrew people whom he was destined to deliver. Because this is the truth, folks. Empathy is one of the qualities God demands from those who would follow him. When Moses saw the Hebrew slave being beaten by the Egyptian, he had a sense of ethnic identity. But in Midian, he began to embody a sense of ethnic empathy. It was in the wilderness of Midian that Moses learned what it was like to be a Hebrew. 
And in Midian, Moses encounters the seven daughters of Ruel. We, we know him by his name Jethro. Some local shepherds are causing these women trouble. Moses steps in and helps them. Hey, he's once more acting like a deliverer. Only this time, at least he didn't kill anybody. That's an improvement. Furthermore, when he rescued the women, he came to their aid by watering their flocks. Again, that's something a man would not do in that culture to perform a menial task for a woman. But now Moses has gone from the heights of privilege in the Egyptian palace to serving those who by custom would have been serving him. Moses is beginning to show the development of character that's beginning to bear fruit. After showing the women kindness, he's invited to come up and stay with the family. He ends up marrying one of them, Zipporah. But he's to spend the next 40 years in obscurity, in poverty, but he's not alone. God is with him. God is shaping him. God is molding his character, shaping him into the man God can use. Do you think it worked? Well, later on in the book of Numbers, it describes Moses as being the most humble man on the face of the earth. I'd say it worked. See, back in Egypt, though Moses had the leadership skills, he didn't have the leadership character. When you have more skill than character, God can't use you greatly. And you're going to have a tough time in life. Character, character is your moral and your spiritual makeup. It's the, word, it's the word we use to talk about habitual tendencies. It's the way that we think and feel and choose to act. And the makeup of what is called character is what makes people trustworthy or undependable. It's what makes people humble or arrogant. It determines our capacity to be with God, to experience God, and to love God and know God. And it determines our ability to know and love people. All of that is a part of our character. When we're called in the Bible to be imitators of Jesus, the idea isn't that we try to imitate his giftedness. <laughs> There's no way I could begin to do that. We try to imitate his character. The, the idea is that his kind of character can be formed inside of us. Giftedness is good, but it's not the greatest good. And it's important to be clear on this. Because we live in a culture that idolizes giftedness. Because giftedness in our culture is the way to get the stuff that our culture tells us that we ought to want. Giftedness is the path to the good stuff. Giftedness is what makes other people look at you and say, wow. Giftedness gets people on magazine covers. It, it gets them big bonuses and corner offices. It lets them run in exclusive crowds. And therefore, we're tempted to put more energy into enhancing our giftedness than to paying attention to what's going on in our character. When we idolize giftedness, we also end up envying other people's giftedness. Anybody here ever experience envy? Yeah, let's do a mass confession. It's good for the soul, okay? If you have ever envied anybody's youth, looks, athleticism, musical ability, IQ, education, speaking ability, status, waistline, or bottom line, raise your hand. Okay, and the pastor's preaching on lying next week, so... Uh, 
No, when we envy someone's giftedness, we look at them and we say, if I just had more of that, then I would finally have arrived. Then I would be okay. But always with giftedness, there's a kind of burden that comes, right? Temptations that come. Tendencies toward a sense of entitlement. And if there's not character there, your giftedness will crush you. It will. It really will. Moses is learning all this because he's in the wilderness at Midian. The wilderness is part of the landscape of faith. And it's every bit as essential as the mountaintop. We, we all love mountaintop experiences with the Lord. On the mountaintop, we're overwhelmed by God's presence. In the wilderness, we're overwhelmed by his silence. Both both places should bring us to our knees. The first in utter awe, the second in utter dependence. Character is built in the wilderness and it's tested on the mountaintop. And I don't know about you, but my big problem is I keep trying to run out of the wilderness, scurry out from under God's work in my life there. Suffering? <laughs> I don't want any part of that, Lord. But the truth is, everybody you know will spend some time in Midian. Everybody you know will go through the wilderness probably multiple times in their life. And when we do, often the shame of what got us there keeps us there. Someone's been digging around in our sand pile. They find the hidden bodies. They discover we don't have it all together. They realize we're just as broken and dysfunctional as they are. But beloved, don't quit on God just because you're in the wilderness. You only know half the story if you stop following Jesus in the wilderness. Because he spent some time in the wilderness too, right? Leaning on God as Father to build up strength to be able to not give in to temptation. The enemy will whisper to you, just as he did to Jesus. The enemy will whisper to you while you're in the wilderness, you've, you've, been, you've been wronged by that person. Who needs them? Just leave or, or ignore them. All those people over there, they're just hypocrites anyway. You, you know, come out of there. You, you don't need to be with those people. Just walk away. Come on, all the abuse in the churches all around, when are you gonna quit this religious game and go out and find your own freedom and find your own truth, right? You're wasting your time with this Jesus thing. All those whispers. Friends, God is with you in your wilderness. He's shaping you. He's molding your character. He hasn't quit on you. Don't you quit on him. Our deacons are going to come now and begin to pass out the elements of the Lord's Supper. See, it was only after his time in the wilderness that God, in Exodus 3, revealed himself to Moses through a burning bush. He called Moses to take off his sandals and approach God on this holy ground. Because holy ground is where we hear God speak and it's where we get our vision for life. Forty years before this, the last time Moses had a sense of God calling him, it went straight to his head. And he usurped God's timetable by killing the Egyptian who was abusing a Hebrew. But 40 years later, now in front of the burning bush, Moses shows no pride. Instead, he hears God speak and he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? 
And that's one of Moses' all-time best moments. I'm telling you, his reaction to God in the burning bush reflected his humility and his awareness of his own weaknesses. He humbly gave God his shepherd's staff, his only life's possession at that point, and God gave it back to him as a personal symbol of God's presence and power with him. And you might say, well, Hugh, that's fine for Moses. But what's the point of my obedience when it feels like nobody else is obeying? God hasn't been doing those kind of great things in my life to prepare me for anything great. Oh, yes, he has. We are God's handiwork, Ephesians 2 says, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You may not see it. You may not recognize the sovereign hand of God in your life. But if you just look back for a moment, who was it that rescued you that time? You know what time I'm talking about. Who was it that stepped in in the middle of the night? You remember that night? You know that time when your heart was so broken and God began to use it to tenderize you so that you could be more empathetic and more loving and sensitive to others? Who, who sent the angel that time to slow you down? Where did that come from? Who has carried you through your disappointments? You thought, I'm going to die now for sure. I have no hope left in life. Who carried you every step of the way? Who has covered your life, not with pitch, but with the very blood of Jesus, your Savior? Are you telling me, church, that Romans 8 is not true? That God doesn't work all things together for the good of those who love him? He has given you his presence, his power, and there's a million different ways he wants to use you to help others see that Jesus has made atonement, at-one-ment for them at the cross. You give him your staff your giftedness in the middle of the wilderness and he gives you that staff, that rod back to you and once you've been in the wilderness with God, beloved, with the rod of God you can strike the rock and the water will come. With the rod of God you can part the waters of the sea. With the rod of God you can strike old Pharaoh dead. With the rod of God you can set others free from their bondage of sin and with the rod of God you can wrestle with God in prayer and things change. All the stuff that has happened in your life, do you not think that Romans 8.28 applies to you? That he is today working all things together for your good because you love him, because you have been called according to his purposes for your life. Moses was called for a purpose, but he only became a deliverer because he was rejected. Because he lost the privileges of royalty and humbled himself to live elsewhere in poverty. That's Moses' story. But do you know anybody else like that? Anybody else come to mind that existed in the form of God but didn't regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped? But humbled himself and became a man despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief? And just what was the Son of Man's task? To provide atonement, at one for people that were far, far, far from God. And he did it at the cross. 
And when you believe by faith that the death of Jesus covers your sins and your guilt, your sins are atoned for. After Moses approached Pharaoh with the rod of God, and numerous plagues descended on the Egyptians, but Pharaoh's heart just kept on getting harder and harder, God had one final plan. The king always has one more move. He instructed the Hebrew families to take an unblemished lamb and and sacrifice it to the Lord and to cover their doorposts with the blood of that lamb so that when the angel of death would pass by, it would pass over any house that had the blood on their doorposts. So the Hebrews were made one with God and their sin was atoned for the same way ours is atoned for, by faith. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.